0: Let's uh, remain standing for the reading of God's holy word. Today's text comes from James chapter 1, verses 26 through 27. And the word of the Lord says If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. The word of the Lord. Praise be to Christ. You can all be seated. Today is one of those Sundays where I'm preaching to myself, and you all have the misfortune of having to sit and listen to a sermon that I really need to hear, uh, as much as or more than many of you do, uh, because today's text hits hard in some areas where I seem... To miss the mark frequently. Uh, But before we unpack this text and see what God is saying to us today through James' writing, I want to take a moment and clear our minds and open our hearts and let's pray. If you would pray with me. Father, every word of God is pure. Help us today to hear your word and to learn from your word and to let your word reveal to us not only the good news of the gospel. But let it trim away the imperfections and attitudes and habits and sins that hinder us from hearing you. Make us something new through the power of your pure, true word, taking root in us and changing our hearts. God, help me to preach the sermon that I need to hear. Help us all to know you through the hearing of the beauty and the loveliness and the sweetness of the gospel today. It's in the beautiful name of Jesus that we pray, amen. So we've been working our way line by line and word by word through the book of James for a little over a month now, and James defines for us today what pure religion looks like. Now, there are a lot of people who hear the word religion, and that's an instant turn off for them because they think about old, boring rituals that people do in churches, and they say, I don't want anything to do with religion. And they'll say things like, Christianity is not about religion. It's about a relationship. And we've heard that before, and it's true. Uh, but when James talks about pure religion... He's not talking about any cold and impersonal way of going through the motions of religious ceremonies. Instead, when he says pure religion, he's talking about genuine faith. What does a true follower of Christ look like in practice? What is it that Jesus demands of his followers? Now, there might be a couple of you who are a little taken aback by the phrase, What does Jesus demand of his followers? Because we don't like to think about that kind of Jesus. We want a Jesus who doesn't demand anything of us. Instead, we want a Jesus who affirms us just as we are. A Jesus who winks at our sin and laughs at our sin and agrees with all of our opinions and always makes us feel good about ourselves. But the fact is, the Christian life is a crucified life. It's a life that gives excessively because Christ gave excessively on the cross It's a life that cares for the well-being of others because Christ cared for the well-being of others. It's a life that strives for holiness because Christ was holy. Uh, In the book of James alone, there are over 50 imperative commands given to Christians to tell them how they should conduct themselves. So the Christian life is a demanding life. Now, I want you to understand this. We are not saved because of any good thing we do or any sin that we avoid. No amount of church attendance, no amount of giving to the poor, no amount of avoiding the big sins will produce a spiritual resume that will make you a Christian and get you in good with God. Christianity is not about what we do to get saved. Christianity is about what Christ did to save us. We're saved by faith and not by works. But faith in Christ should produce good works in believers. Uh, For followers of Christ, the word of God is like a seed that's planted inside of your heart. And it produces fruit in your life. It changes the way you think and act and feel about life and your priorities and your money and your schedule and other people and all the craziness that happens in the world around us today. Now, you can be religious without knowing Jesus. Uh, You know what veneers are? Uh, Sometimes people aren't satisfied for whatever reason with the way their teeth look. Uh, uh, Maybe they're discolored or not as pretty as someone would like them to be. So they get veneers to cover what they feel is ugly. Uh, and, And James is telling us here not to have a veneer faith, not to have a superficial faith that's about appearances because it's deceptive and there's something ugly underneath. James is telling us today what a true, pure, deep-rooted faith looks like in action. And in today's text, James identifies three signs of pure religion, three indicators of a genuine faith in Christ. And here they are. One is how you speak. Two is how you serve. And three, your stance on sin. All right, we'll start with this, James one twenty six. how you speak. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. James says here that if you can't control your tongue, then your religion, your claim to be a Christian, is worthless, and you're just fooling yourself. He uses language that implies bridling a horse to describe controlling the things you say. If you want to ride a horse, you put a bridle in its mouth, and that allows the rider to keep the horse under control. I have a cousin who has horses, and the first horse he ever bought, uh, I went with him, we went out in the field, and there was these two horses next to each other. And the guy who was selling these two horses was telling him, Uh, this horse over here and we could look and tell it was old it was a little sway back it just didn't look in as good a condition and he said this horse over here it's been ridden a lot and and and, uh, you know it's a pretty uh, pretty stable horse he's nothing to worry about he's slow he's a good beginner horse and then the horse next to him though was young And he was strong-looking and fast-looking, and he was feisty out there in the field. Uh, And so we were looking at these horses, and my cousin instantly pointed out the younger horse, and he said, that's the one I want. And so he bought it. This is his first horse. And we loaded him up in the trailer, no problem, took him home. And then my cousin went to put the bridle in his mouth, and he was not taking a bridle. He did not want to be controlled. That horse had not been broken. So uh, a broken horse is a horse that's under control. Now, if you looked at these two horses out in the field, uh, eating grass next to each other, you can't really tell which is which, but when you try to bridle them, you know which one can be controlled and which one can't. James is comparing our tongues, the the words we use, to the horse. When we've been broken by true repentance... And our hearts have been changed by Christ. The spirit in us uh, uh, works and we have the ability to keep our mouths under control. What you say reveals what's in your heart. Jesus said in Luke 6.45, The good man brings good things out of the good stored up in his heart. And the evil man brings evil things out of the evil stored up in his heart. For out of the overflow of his heart, his mouth speaks. James is saying, if you can't control your gossip, if you can't control the obscenities that come out of your mouth, if you can't control your racist comments, if you can't control your angry outbursts and harsh criticisms, if you're constantly talking about the faults in other people, if you can't control your demeaning language and cut-downs of other people, then you need to self-examine because you might not have a genuine faith. James chapter 3, verses 10 and 12 says, From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives or a grapevine produce figs Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. What I'm saying to you is how you use your tongue, the words you speak, are indicative of whether or not you're born again and growing in Christ. They're evidence of whether or not you really know Jesus, like a thermometer that tells the spiritual temperature of your heart. Now, everybody has times when their speech is less than perfect, can we all agree on that? Everybody does. James goes on and says in James chapter 3, verse 2, that only a perfect man, only a man who is completely mature in his faith, will be able to keep his mouth in check on a consistent basis. When you get a bridle in a horse's mouth for the first time, uh, Miss Marianne has, has had horses, I guess, probably most of her life. When you put a bridle in a horse's mouth for the first time and it's never had a bridle before, is it safe and ready to ride right at that moment? No, No, it's not. It's not. It's a process of training and changing from unbroken to rideable. And this is not something that's a microwave process. This doesn't happen in 30 seconds. This is a crock pot, all right? This is going to take a while. But as we grow in our faith and as time goes on, it should be easier for us to control how we speak. It should be easier for us to say, I'm sorry, I was wrong, I shouldn't have said that, I love you. If we're maturing in our relationship with Christ, our words are indicators of the condition of our hearts. And whether Christ has saved us and whether He's working in us to make us new. And the next characteristic of genuine faith James talks about in today's text is this it's how you serve. Uh, James 127. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction. James is telling us here that pure religion, a true, genuine faith, will give itself unselfishly in the service of others. Uh, James identifies two particular groups of people to drive the point home, orphans and widows. And he adds a qualifying phrase to that. He says, orphans and widows in their affliction. James is talking about people who exist on the fringes of society, people who are forgotten and neglected and alone, and they have no one to care for them. Uh, God's concern for the helpless is found all throughout Scripture. Exodus 22 says, You shall not mistreat any widow or fatherless child. If you do mistreat them and they cry out to me, I will surely hear their cry, my wrath will burn, and I will kill you with a sword, and your wives shall become widows and your children fatherless. Listen, I don't know about you, but when I'm reading my Bible and when God says, If you don't do this, I'm going to kill you. That kind of catches my attention, okay? And it should all of us. Uh, Isaiah 117, learn to do good, seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, plead the widow's cause. Uh, Zechariah chapter 7, show kindness and mercy to one another. Do not oppress the widow, the fatherless, the sojourner, or the poor, and let none of you devise evil against another in your heart. The, the the issue with widows and orphans during James' time, during the first century, uh, widows had little legal protection back then. And, and it was people who had this veneer religion that looked good on the outside but was rotten on the inside that are identified in Scripture as preying on them the most. Jesus said in Mark chapter 12, verses 38 through 40, he said, Beware of the scribes, highly religious people, who like to walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplaces, and who have the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts, who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation." So you had these religious leaders who loved to make a show of themselves and pray loudly and wear long flowing robes in church, but they were making themselves rich by taking advantage of widows, literally bankrupting them. Jesus said, devouring their houses, leaving them with nothing according to what Jesus said. So here's what James is doing. He's telling us that a sign of a true, genuine faith is someone who will serve others with compassion and mercy, who will serve widows and orphans and foster children and addicted people and the developmentally delayed and the unborn and victims of sex trafficking and prisoners and refugees and the hurting and the hopeless, people that the world abuses and ignores and forgets. Pure religion involves caring for those who have nothing to offer in return. When God saved me from my hopeless lostness, I had nothing to offer him that would impress him. In fact, the only thing that I contributed to my salvation was the sin that Jesus died for on the cross. God has no emotional or material need that any of us could fulfill. The Father did not send the Son to die on the cross because He just couldn't stand being in heaven without you. Jesus does not need a girlfriend. That's not why He died. God is self-sufficient in every way. We have nothing to offer except empty hands and a sinful heart. But God in his mercy gives us Christ on the cross, and in doing so, he exposes the beauty of his character. Psalm 68.5 says he is a father to the fatherless and a defender of widows. Psalm 146.9 says he watches over the alien and sustains the fatherless and the widow. Deuteronomy 10.18 says that he defends the cause of the fatherless and the widow and loves the alien and gives them food and clothing. Johnny Erickson Totter wrote, God, like a father, doesn't just give advice. He gives himself. He becomes the husband to the grieving widow. He becomes the comforter to the barren woman. He becomes the father of the orphaned. He becomes the bridegroom to the single person. He is the healer to the sick he is the wonderful counselor to the confused and the depressed. She wrote, This is what you do when someone you love is in anguish. You respond to the plea of their heart by giving them your heart. James challenges us to be compassionate people and to give our hearts to people who are hurting. 1 Thessalonians 2.8 says, Loving you so much, we gave you not only the good news of the gospel, but our own lives as well, because you were so very dear to us. Christ gave his life for me when I had nothing to give in return. So he calls us to give our lives for others. And then the final indicator of a life that has been transformed by Christ, an individual who has pure religion and genuine faith is this, and that is your stance towards sin. Some of you have probably been sitting there thinking, well, this has been a sermon so far about works because Lee is telling us (laughs) that if we just control our tongues, then we'll be in good with God. And some of you are sitting there thinking, well, this is a sermon about social justice, and if we just do good for others, then we'll be in good for God. But I'm going to tell you, James doesn't leave out sin. And it can't, a conversation uh, about faith can't be held without talking about our sin. James one twenty seven. religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to keep oneself unstained from the world. It's New Year's Day, and a lot of us have made New Year's resolutions. This year I'm going to lose that weight and keep it off. This year, I'm going to eat more healthy. This year, I'm going to save more money. This year, I'm going to take that dream vacation. This year, I'm going to make all those changes I've been talking about. The problem is most of our resolutions focus on me and my happiness. A.W. Tozier wrote this, though. He said, God isn't as concerned with your happiness as he is with your holiness. Once you become a Christian and you have that pure religion, that real, genuine faith, the Holy Spirit sets you on a path of transformation, not a path to a better body or some self-improvement program. Instead, he draws us toward a willingness to hear the Word of God and live out what we hear without compromise. When James talks about keeping oneself unstained from the world, he uses a Greek word for world there, cosmos that means the culture around us, the lifestyles and the attitudes are, and, and the morality, or in some cases the lack of morality in the world around us. He uses a present tense phrase, keep yourself pure and undefiled. And when he does this, he means we're in a continual process of becoming different from the world around us and more like Jesus. Uh, 1 Peter 1.9 uses the same sort of language to describe Jesus when he says he was without blemish and without spot. So God is holy, and he is calling us to be holy as well. The other night, I, I had the strangest dream I think I've ever had. And, and it wasn't just because I had eaten too many tacos. Uh, it, was a, it was a vivid dream. I dreamt that I went back in time 10 years, but I went back with all of the knowledge that I had gained during that time frame and the opportunity to correct wrongs and make better decisions than I had made. And in that dream, I found that wasn't far enough back to effectively correct all of my moral failures and my bad decisions. So in the dream, I went back 20 years, again with all the knowledge of what would happen over the next 20 years and the opportunity to get it right that time. But I found that the roots of my problems went back much deeper. And in the dream, I wound up going all the way back to when I was 10 years old in a moment when I was angry at my brother and I broke a radio that belonged to him. And I thought in the dream, all right, this is the moment when I can change my actions and I will be a better person at 55 than I am right now. But in the dream, I was sad because I was holding that radio in my hands and I realized there's no amount of time that I could go back to fix all of my bad choices and all of my rebellion and all of the outright sin that I've committed. I woke up and my heart was broken over my history over those times that I had done things the world's way instead of God's way. And even now, in my waking reality, those imperfections in my life interrupt me all the time, and they corrupt my words and my thoughts and my actions and my relationships with others. I have sin in my history, and I have sin in my present. Marshall Seagal writes about two types of sin. One is unrepentant sin. It's sin that people have no sorrow over. And the other is remaining sin. Unrepentant sin is a sign that you don't know Christ. These are people who call what is evil good and what is good evil. But remaining sin is different. It's a sin that is in us, but through the blood of Jesus, it is forgiven. And there is a set expiration date for it. If you believe in the gospel, on the day you leave this earthly body, you will never experience that sin or its consequences again. Psalm 103 says that God's forgiveness separates our sin from us as far as the east is from the west. And Psalm 16 says that once we are face-to-face with God, we won't remember our sinful history anymore, but we will experience unending, unbreakable joy. All the sins of past and present will be gone forever. I want to say here, if you look at your own life, and over the past 10, 20, 30 years or more, or, or even look at today, And you're thinking, geez, James says Christians should have self-control over their mouths, and I had a huge fight with my spouse this morning. Or I just snapped at my kids a few minutes ago in the church parking lot. Or I cussed someone out at work this week. Or James says one of the marks of a true Christian is the desire to help those who can't help themselves. And I never really even think about helping people who are needy uh, because they got themselves in in their own mess. Or, or, or maybe James says a sign of legitimate faith is I'll avoid sin and the trouble around me in the world. And I don't even avoid my sin. In fact, most of the time I enjoy my sin. And the world and what it says and what it has to offer has influenced a lot of the way I think. And a lot of the way I act and the way I feel, the way I spend my money, the way I organize my calendar, uh, the way I vote, all of that. Paul was aware of this remaining sin in his life. And he wrote this. He wrote in Philippians 3. He talks about maturing toward a state of righteousness. And he he wrote this. He said, Not that I have already obtained this, or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own, because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it on my own. But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. We all have remaining sin, even after we're saved. But as Christians, repentance becomes a lifestyle for us. Every day, every hour, even minute by minute. Sinfulness will remain, but holiness will be what you desire and pursue. Paul knew he had remaining sin in his life. He said himself in Romans, I I do the things I don't want to do, and I don't do the things I know I should do. But Paul loved Christ, and he considered himself at war with his sin, and he constantly pressed toward the day when his sin would no longer trouble him. James, in today's text, and Paul, in that passage in Philippians, They're teaching us about a process called sanctification, becoming mature and holy in our faith. Um, I'm a terrible dancer, terrible, terrible dancer, but I can do the hokey pokey like nobody's business. Sometimes sanctification is like dancing the hokey pokey. One foot forward, Two steps back. One step forward, one step back. But through it all, we press through our imperfections towards holiness, forgetting what lies behind and pressing forward toward what lies ahead so that we can experience and enjoy more of Jesus. As long as we're in this world, we're going to be surrounded by sinful philosophies and lifestyles, and we will sin ourselves. But James is teaching us that the mark of someone who is truly saved is that they will have self control. They'll be able to control their speech, they'll be working on that, they'll be striving to have compassionate attitudes towards others who are less fortunate. And even though they're in a culture that is filthy with sinful ideas, They don't buy into that stuff. They press to build their lives around God's Word and His commands. You're still going to sin, but God wants the attitude of your heart to change. R.C. Sproul wrote, Every Christian is called out of this world, out of bondage, out of death, and out of sin, and into Christ. A redeemed heart, will have the ability to self-examine and to work to move forward in a different direction, leaving behind the failures of the past and looking forward to Christ. 1 Peter 1, 14-16 says this, As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as He who called you is holy, you also be holy in your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. As we grow up in faith, these sins that used to imprison us have become these passions of former ignorance. Once we're called by Christ into salvation, we can begin the process of letting our old desires fade into the past. Uh, We don't need to go back in time to correct those things. They're dead. They're dead, they don't define us anymore. We don't have to fear the skeletons and the closet anymore. They are former, not present. A. W. Tozier wrote, "The whole purpose of God in redemption is to make us holy and to restore us to the image of God. To accomplish this, He disengages us from earthly ambitions and draws us away from the cheap and unworthy prizes. That worldly men set their hearts upon. As we grow closer to Christ, our attitudes about the temptations and enticements of the world change, and we have an increased desire to be more like Jesus. In the words of Oswald Chambers, we become more ablaze for the glory of God. To sum up, John MacArthur wrote this He wrote, It's not our perfection that proves our salvation. It's the reaction to our imperfection. Is the normal pattern of your life as you look at your own heart, a tongue that speaks good things, pure things, upright things, honorable things, honest things, clean things. But every once in a while the flesh comes through too. But do you desire to honor God with your tongue? with how you speak that rises macarthur wrote out of a transformed heart he also wrote and what about people in need do you have a desire to meet that need does it burden your heart that there are folks who are deprived does that burden your heart to the point when you find out about that you rush to meet those needs there are times when you don't but when you don't do you feel uh, when you don't feel uh, but when you don't do you feel guilty about that He wrote that's the indication of a transformed life And finally he wrote and do you want to conform do you want not to conform to the world more than anything else And every time you get too close and you realize you're conforming to sin do you want to run from that Do you want to repent of your sins and follow Christ That's the mark of a transformed life. Everyone who has been forgiven by God carries some memory of sin in your life. And Satan will fight hard to make sure those sins haunt us. Revelation 12.10 says his primary job is to accuse us. He wants you to forget that you're in Christ and question whether God could love you. And as Christians, we have to learn to forget what God has forgiven and remember what Christ has done. The good news of the gospel is in Romans 5, eight. Gosh, y'all, some of y'all probably get tired of it. But I think I've probably quoted this verse every Sunday for the past eight years I've been here. God shows his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners... Christ died for us. We might be sinners who deserve God's wrath, but the good news is that Jesus Christ died on the cross to pay the price for our sins so that anyone who believes in Him no longer has to fear God's judgment, but instead you can enjoy God forever. So today we're going to share the Lord's Supper together to remember what Christ has done for us, and to rejoice in the future hope that He gives us. We're going to share in this together, and uh, I, I'm going to ask if, uh, if uh, Kyle and Brent could come and, and help serve this morning. Um, it's a good thing to pray and to confess your sins uh, before you receive the Lord's Supper, because Scripture's clear. If you receive it in an unworthy manner, you could become sick or even die. So uh, we always give a moment to confess sins. And if if you don't know the words to say in your heart, if you're like me, and if you tried to think of every sin you committed in the past week, I can't remember them all. Uh, Brittany writes them down for me, but I, I can't. I just can't remember them all. Um. Uh, So I'm I'm going to ask you, if you would, if if you want to spend some time quietly confessing your sins before God, that's fine. But there's also an old, old prayer of confession that we put on the screen sometimes on Sundays. If you would, pray it with me. Let us confess our sins before God and one another. Most merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed by what we have done and by what we have left undone. We have not loved you with our whole heart. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We are truly sorry and we humbly repent. For the sake of your Son, Jesus Christ, have mercy on us and forgive us, that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your name. Amen. This is the good news of the gospel, that God shows his love for us in this, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. First John 1.9 says if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So the good news for you today and for me today is that God pardons those who truly repent and transforms those who trust in God for salvation with sincere hearts. I, I'm going to ask our musicians to come and receive first. On the night the Lord Jesus was betrayed, He took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. First Corinthians 10.17 says, Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body. For we all partake of the one bread. There is one Jesus and one alone, and that is the Jesus of the Bible. A lot of people try to create their own versions of Jesus to approve and affirm their sinfulness. But we know as a family in Christ, there's only one. He has blessed us with salvation, and we receive him now in gratitude for what he has done, remembering the great gift of Christ on the cross.